to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Georgina Arnott, and I'm the Assistant Editor at ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version, or $60 for print plus online. Hello, this is Dan Disney. One of the world's most illustrious poetry competitions, the Peter Porter Poetry Prize, opens on the 3rd of July and will remain open until the 9th of October. Last year I received the prize, this year with the magnificent poets Felicity Plunkett and Lachlan Brown, I'm fortunate enough to be judging the Peter Porter Poetry Prize. Of course, we look forward to receiving and reading your entries. For details about the 2024 Porter Poetry Prize, worth a total of $10,000 in prize money, visit the Australian Book Review website. On this week's ABR podcast, critic and essayist James Lee reflects on J.M. Curtsy's Life and Times of Michael Kay 40 years after its publication. Curtsy's fourth and Booker Prize winning novel was his landmark work, Lee suggests. This was despite it receiving criticism for supposedly eliding the political realities of apartheid South Africa by being set in the realm of allegory. Here is James Lee with An Obscure Prodigy, J.M. Curtsy's Life and Times of Michael Kay at 40. An Obscure Prodigy Why should I be expected to rise above my times? Is it my doing that my times have been so shameful? Why should it be left to me, old and sick and full of pain, to lift myself out of this pit of disgrace? These are the words of Mrs Curran, the elderly narrator of J.M. Kutzier's underappreciated mid-period novel, Age of Iron. But it would be easy enough to find similarly anguished sentiments being expressed by the magistrate in Waiting for the Barbarians, or Dostoevsky in The Master of Petersburg, or David Lurie in Disgrace, or the eponymous protagonist of Elizabeth Costello. It has long been apparent that there is a recognisable Kurtzian type who appears in various guises in his many novels. These characters tend to be educated products of their relatively privileged social positions. They are conscious of the pain and injustice in the world, conscious of their own suffering, and conscious of their impotence in the face of overmastering contexts. Their common instinct is to philosophise about these problems. Many ironies, gruelling and subtle, arise from their desire for redemption and their simultaneous awareness of its impossibility, not least of which is that their penchant for metaphysical high-mindedness has a distinct tendency on display in Mrs Curran's lament to bend back on itself in a way that resembles self-absorption or even self-pity. Curtsy's recent Jesus trilogy makes overt a latent feature of this existential angst, namely that it is culturally, if not actually, Christian. The moral lexicon of his fiction, the recurring concepts of shame and disgrace in particular, is at very least religiously inflected in that it speaks of an internalisation of a fallen state. It assumes a burden of guilt more onerous than mere personal culpability. 
The ironic twist Kurtzir gives to his character's torturous questioning is that their search for answers is part of their dilemma. It is not possible to think or will your way to a counterposing state of grace, which is by definition something that can only be mysteriously bestowed. The movement of Kurtzir's fiction is thus somewhat paradoxically for such a cerebral writer, towards a renunciation of bootless intellectualising. In the Jesus trilogy, the notional divinity of the precocious child, David, manifests itself in his preternatural idealism, his refusal to be schooled in the constraining laws of earthbound rationality. But Kurtzir, for much of his career, has been more inclined to lower his gaze. His work gestures towards a materiality that is prior to language and ideas, glimpsing in this the possibility of an obverse state of grace, often represented by animals which are apt to appear as embodiments of equanimity. Their positive counterexample is their groundedness, their ability to live within themselves, their refusal to torment themselves with abstractions. As Mrs Curran muses, animals do not compound the indignity of their suffering by trying to find meaning in it. Kurtzi's fourth book, Life and Times of Michael Kay, takes on its particular significance in light of this defining conflict. In the context of his long career, it's a landmark work. Arriving in the wake of Waiting for the Barbarians, perhaps the greatest of his early novels, it consolidated his international reputation, winning him the Booker Prize for the first time. But it also received some trenchant criticism from no less an eminence than Nadine Gordimer, who suggested that Life and Times of Michael Kay, a novel steeped in the violence and degradation of the apartheid regime, was avoiding the political realities of the situation by shifting its harrowing narrative into the realm of allegory. The criticism seems a little odd in hindsight, given how deeply Kurtz's South African novels are marked by the horrors of apartheid and how explicitly they grapple with the legacies of colonialism. Gordimer's allegiance to Georg Lukács' notion that realism is the appropriate genre for the politically engaged novelist now seems dated, even a little quaint. But her criticism hit a nerve, largely because Kurtzir does indeed cast Michael Kay as a strange mythical figure, whose implications are not political in any immediate sense. I am not sure he is wholly of our world, observes the medical officer, who narrates the second section of the novel. Michael is sanctified as an original soul, a human soul above and beneath classification, a soul blessedly untouched by doctrine, untouched by history. He is the obscurest of the obscure, so obscure as to be a prodigy. One way to make sense of these extravagant claims might be to read Life and Times of Michael Kay as a Rousseauan thought experiment. Michael is an innocent, a kind of holy fool, his nature uncorrupted by society, a condition the novel bestows on him via a combination of ignorance and estrangement. In this, he inverts the familiar Kurtzian perspective. As he navigates his way through a war-ravaged land, he is subjected to a series of trials. The illness and death of his mother at the beginning of the novel severs his only familial bond and exposes him to the symptoms of broken society, unemployment, civil unrest, an obstructive and opaque bureaucracy, an overwhelmed and dysfunctional hospital system, forced labour, a corrupt military, poverty and vagrancy, an internment camp. These trials sometimes spark his moral conscience, 
Do I believe in helping people, he wondered. And there are moments when Michael thinks of his ordeal as a lesson and an education. But he gains no real insight into the historical and political forces that have generated his misery, nor does he display any interest in understanding them. For Michael, they are simply how the world is. This is the conceptual paradox that seems to give teeth to Gordimer's objection. Michael is enigmatic because he is a concrete depiction of an impossibility. The novel means to test his uncanny innocence against the scourge of reality, yet that innocence is predicated on his status as a simpleton who is alienated from his times, making his political inconsequence something of a fait accompli. The oddness of his character exists in an uneasy relation with the stylized world of the novel, which is at once specific, it is explicitly set in South Africa, and indistinct, the historical context is left vague. The medical officer apostrophizes to Michael that there is something significant in the originality of the resistance you offered. You were not a hero, and you did not appear to be. But the unpalatable form of that unheroic resistance is to remain helpless in the face of misery and oppression. Even when Michael tries to establish his independence, attempting to grow pumpkins on an abandoned farm, the Crusoean fantasy of enterprising self-sufficiency ends in failure. His fate is to be caught up again in the war he does not comprehend, dragged back into history against his will. The final section of the novel completes his descent into objection when he finally succumbs to the corrupting influence of society and takes to drink. With remorseless novelistic logic, Michael's life is undone by his times. No one can remain untouched by history and doctrine. The idea is absurd. In this sense, Life and Times of Michael Kay is rigorous enough to dismantle its own premises, undermine the conceit that Michael is some kind of super-historical, quasi-religious figure. His passive resistance, his pre-sentiment of a single meaning, and the portentous biblical authority of his declaration, I am what I am, are ultimately harbingers of nothing, or at least nothing of any consequence. The obscure nature of his purported specialness also brings in train a number of retrograde assumptions. Sanctification of pointless suffering, idealisation of simple-mindedness, conflation of virtue and victimhood, which the novel seeks to address via a structural ingenuity. The medical officer's confession serves a metafictional purpose. It is also the novel's confession, the point at which its implications and intentions are laid bare. He lavishes his inscrutable patient with significance, describing their brief encounter in revelatory terms in a way that spills over into self-consciousness. Michael's attributed meaning becomes so exaggerated, so overdetermined, that it reveals itself to be a projection. Therein resides the crucial ambiguity. The novel ironises the attribution of profundity, but does not want to disavow that profundity. If a work of fiction can be said to express a desire, it would certainly appear to be the case that, on some level, Life and Times of Michael Kay wants a trace of revelatory possibility to cling to its emaciated protagonist. It wants us to recognise the pathos and the battered dignity of Michael's late realisation that there is nothing to be ashamed of in being simple. It wants to be able to examine a life like Michael's, a life marred by undeserved misfortunes and cruelties, one stripped back to the most basic imperatives of survival, and find something other than meaningless suffering. 
In this, Life and Times of Michael Kay asks a timeless question that has motivated much of Kutzi's work. What is the ontological status of moral ideas when the world around us seems to deny them? In what sense, if any, might they be said to inhere in reality? Christian mythology gives us, in the life and death of Jesus, an allegory about the unhappy fate of goodness in a corrupt world. The malformed figure of Michael Kay is an attempt to bring that myth and the impossible trans-historical hope it represents into contact with history. His story is an attempt to find a literary form that might allow such an idea to be adequately expressed. Part of the unsettling power of life and times of Michael Kay is that this conceptual difficulty is not resolved. It would be another 30 years before Kutzir would undertake to address the same mythical inheritance, creating in the character of David a figure who might yet bear the impossible weight of signification. But it's no small matter that the extraordinary Jesus trilogy is not set in any recognisable reality, but in an imaginatively liberated realm of absolute fiction. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review Podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.